It had a bit of Oedipus complex. It had hitmen. It had inmate fighting. It had um, just a multitude of things, sex, you know, drugs, everything you can think of. That was retired Edgewater police detective Dave Gamel, who investigated the twisted murder of Dr. Norman Larzalier 27 years ago. Part two of that unforgettable saga is coming up on Sun Crime State. I'm Tony Holt, crime reporter for the Daytona Beach News Journal. Welcome to Sun Crime State, a weekly podcast that takes an in-depth look at Florida's biggest crime stories of the past and present. In this episode, I'll discuss the recent arrest of a former NASCAR truck series driver who was indicted last week on a federal charge of trying to entice a minor into having sex. Then later, I'll discuss the 1991 slang of Edgewater dentist Norman Larzalier, which led to the arrest of Virginia Larzalier and her oldest son, Jason. I'll discuss the surprise trial verdicts, the shocking discoveries made by detectives, and how much the case captivated tabloid news audiences more than two and a half decades ago. Coming up, the story on the arrest of disgraced former NASCAR driver Rick Crawford. On February 28th, 59-year-old Rick Crawford, a driver in NASCAR's truck series for more than 12 years, was arrested in Lake Mary. A criminal complaint filed in Florida's Middle District Court stated he communicated with and tried to meet a father willing to sell his own 12-year-old daughter for sex. It turned out that father was an undercover Seminole County Sheriff's deputy who was assigned to the FBI's Violent Crimes Against Children Task Force. It has been a dramatic fall from grace for an ex-driver who attained a sort of niche celebrity status years ago while the truck series was reaching new heights. Here is News Journal sports writer and columnist and co-host of Daytona Motor Mouths, Ken Willis, talking to me about Crawford's career. Rick was fortunate in, in many ways. He came along and got a, a ride in the NASCAR Truck Series around not long after the Truck Series was formed. And uh, in those earlier years, there was kind of a feeling out process for a couple of years in the Truck Series. But soon thereafter, it became a very popular series. It's thought of primarily as the third tier third tier series. You got the Cup Series, then you got the uh, Xfinity Series, which was back then, I think, still called the Bush Series. And, uh, and then the trucks came along as a third national touring series for NASCAR. And they had a lot of name, familiar names driving, a lot of veteran drivers, a few new guys. It was more of a place. Nowadays, it's kind of become a place for young, up-and-coming guys. You know, it was a breeding ground. And uh, Rick Crawford wasn't necessarily a known entity, but he was competitive and had a competitive ride. He won like five races over the years there. He was a top ten fixture. And uh, he had a competitive truck, and he was part of a series that people paid attention to more than they do now. And uh, so his career, he came along at the right time. Crawford raced on the circuit from 1997 through 2009. He started a total of 336 races. 
And he rode that wave, that NASCAR wave of the early 2000s, where the TV uh, numbers were going up, up, up every year. Attendance at the tracks, up, up, up every year. And uh, he was there at the right time. And uh, and he made a good living at the Truck Series for a decade or so. I don't know, you know, who knows how much of that money he kept. But, I mean, there was money to be made in it. And so he came along at just the right time in, in his career to take advantage of that. Among his five career wins was the 2003 Florida Dodge Dealers 250 at Daytona International Speedway, a race Willis recalls vividly. That was easily his most high-profile win of the five because it was a season-opening race, and it's at Daytona, and there's the biggest crowd they race in front of all year and the biggest TV audience they race in front of all year. And it just so happened to be a three-wide finish. I can't remember the other two drivers, but it was a three-wide finish coming off the fourth turn right down to the wire, and he won by, you know, just a couple of feet, you know. And it was really a just and, – and for years, the truck series race, the Friday night truck series race at Daytona was the best race of the speed weeks because those trucks just went back and forth. They didn't have restrictor plates, so they would swap the lead, go back and forth. They'd, one line would form here, then another line would go high, and they would, you know, they, it was just a great, great entertaining race for many, many years, and that was one of the best ones that they ever had there. After his racing career ended, Crawford settled down in Port Orange. A federal grand jury indicted him on Wednesday on a charge of attempting to entice a minor to engage in sexual activity. If convicted, he faces a sentence of 10 years in prison and a maximum of life in prison. Authorities said Crawford engaged in text and email communications with the undercover deputy for 18 days beginning February 10th. Following the indictment, Crawford was required to forfeit his iPhone, which he used to commit his offenses, according to the U.S. Attorney's Office. The criminal complaint stated that Crawford had requested a photo of the child and negotiated a price to have sex with her. He offered to pay between $50 and $75. He also asked that the girl already be nude by the time he met her. He traveled 45 miles from Port Orange to a Wendy's parking lot in Lake Mary for the meeting. When he arrived, he was arrested by deputies. Crawford most recently was a consultant with a local late model race team operated by former NASCAR driver Mike Skinner, who also raced in the truck series and won 28 times. Willis told me that Skinner didn't hesitate to fire Crawford when he learned about his criminal charge. They severed ties. Uh, Mike Skinner said that, you know, as soon as the news came out that morning, they immediately, obviously, and immediately severed all ties, you know, with them. To hear more from Willis, check out Daytona Motor Mouse podcast, a series he hosts alongside News Journal racing editor Godwin Kelly. Episodes are released every Tuesday morning. You may subscribe to Daytona Motor Mouse via iTunes or Google Play. Coming up, part two of the shocking saga of convicted murderer Virginia Larzalier. It's a very unusual case. Um, it had so many twists and turns and surprises that things that you never, ever expect in, in a homicide like that. 
Retired Edgewater Police Detective Dave Gamel was the lead investigator in the March 8, 1991 slaying of Norman Larzelier, who was gunned down inside his Edgewater dental practice in front of his wife, an employee, and a patient. His wife, Virginia, called 911. Nathan was shot by someone in a ski mask armed with a shotgun. In his dying breaths, Norman could be heard saying the words, Jason, is that you? Jason was Virginia Larzelier's 18-year-old son. Virginia looked to be giving her husband mouth-to-mouth. She was frantic. But after Norman's death, Virginia's behavior perplexed investigators. It took very little time before Gamel's suspicions centered on the widow. Her description of the gunman changed during every interview, sometimes mid-interview. At one point, she said the gunman was stocky and had a ponytail. The other witnesses were consistent, especially the employee, who said the gunman resembled Jason. Virginia did not have a clean record. It wasn't even a spotty record. It was smeared with a variety of felony arrests. Before the shooting, she had been arrested a total of eight times, with the first coming in 1975. Her criminal past included grand larceny, fraud, and issuing worthless checks. Four weeks after the shooting, Virginia was arrested on a first-degree murder charge. Jason was arrested the next day on the same charge. Both faced the death penalty. Virginia was born and raised in Lake Wales. She has told various people who have interviewed her that she was subjected to routine sexual, physical, and emotional abuse. She did not pass up the first chance to leave home. While a teen, she married Harry Mathis. The pair lived in a mobile home park in Polk County. Harry and Virginia, who at the time went by the name Gail Mathis, welcomed a son, Jason. Family life was not rosy, especially not for Harry. Harry thought his wife was cruel, manipulative, and suspected she was cheating on him. One day in 1975, Virginia told Harry that her cousin was stranded on the side of the highway and told him to go help him. Harry got in his car, headed down the highway, and found the vehicle on the side of the road. As he walked toward the vehicle, a stranger emerged and shot him four times, once in the head, once in the arm, and twice in the back. Harry survived. Based on Harry's initial statements to Polk County Sheriff's detectives, they looked directly at Virginia as the main suspect. Virginia lawyered up and never cooperated with law enforcement. Harry eventually clammed up. He decided not to pursue charges against his wife. He wanted to keep his family intact. That didn't last long. The pair separated in October 1977. In 1982, Virginia married a Florida Highway Patrol trooper. She had hid her criminal past from him. At one point, Virginia accused her second husband of threatening her with a gun. He would later be cleared of that allegation. 
Gamel told me there was a time when she called her second husband to tell him someone had broken into their house. Her husband, who was on duty, showed up, but so did two other troopers. One of them peeked through the bedroom window and saw Virginia sitting on her bed with a gun. Gamel told me it was explained to him that Virginia appeared to be waiting for her husband to open the bedroom door so she could shoot him. Her plan was thwarted. The couple separated and got divorced. Two months before that divorce was final, Virginia married a third time. That was in February 1983. Her third husband was a former Volusia County building contractor. That marriage imploded and was annulled that August. Norman Larzelier was a Kalamazoo, Michigan native and graduate of Michigan State. He married a local girl in 1973 and they moved to Volusia County in 1980. They settled into land and Norman became a dentist, first partnering up with another dentist in New Smyrna Beach before going out on his own. He found a spot and a house converted into a dental office in Edgewater. Norman was very successful and respected by his peers. He met Virginia around 1984. It was revealed in a crime show that aired on Investigation Discovery a few years ago that Virginia had come in as a patient and the two began flirting from the outset. Either accidentally or on purpose, Norman dropped a small dental instrument down her shirt, which Virginia playfully fetched for him. The romance was on. Norman left his wife in 1984, and that estranged wife blamed Virginia for wrecking her marriage. Norman married Virginia in June 1985, six months after his divorce. He was dead less than six years later. Norman and Virginia had two children, and Norman adopted both of Virginia's older children, Jason and Jessica. The family nearly was torn apart in 1989, when Norman filed for divorce. The two patched things up, and the petition was pulled on October 1990. A few years before that, Virginia was caught up in an embezzling scheme. She avoided conviction by paying restitution. The attorney who represented her was John Tanner, who would go on to be elected state attorney. Soon after Virginia's murder arrest, he removed himself from the case. Prosecutors from Orange County were assigned to it, Dorothy Sedgwick and Lawson Lamar. When Edgewater police arrested Virginia, the motive seemed clear. Virginia was in line to inherit $2.1 million in life insurance from her dead husband. Documents backed up all of it, and a State Farm agent also told authorities, and later testified on the stand, that Virginia had written her a letter seeking claims of more than $500,000 a mere three weeks after her husband's death. It was also learned that Jason was promised to get paid $200,000 for shooting Norman. The murder weapon was found thanks to two witnesses who came forward, Stephen Heidel and Kristen Palmieri. They were not perfect witnesses. They had admitted to being accessories, but authorities relied on them in large part because they directed them to the murder weapon, which was lying at the bottom of Pelliser Creek near St. Augustine. The two of them also knew the family well. 
Heidel was hired to do some odd jobs for the Larsaliers, including picking up dry cleaning, helping Jason after he got out of the hospital following a car accident, and other odd jobs. Palmieri was a receptionist at the dental practice. They fed law enforcement inside information about the family, much of it shocking. It trickled out through the media and was discussed openly at trial. The media, in particular, were all over it. The Larzelier case caught fire. Robert Nolan spent more than 35 years covering crime and other news in Florida. In the early 1990s, he was a reporter for the News Journal. Here he is talking to me about how the Larzelier case captivated such a large audience. Oh, it's, it's exciting stuff. It, it, these are cases getting national attention. They're, they're reported on by uh, AP. I, you know, we, we fed a lot of uh, a lot of stuff to AP, and it was these were these were big cases. You're right in the thick of it. They, this is back in the in the days when uh, the media, big media cases were, were just kind of kind of fresh in, in journalism. They, they were just bringing to bear all the resources of the media on these these high-profile trials, and a case like Lars Ulier had all the elements, too, that make it an attractive, I guess, story for, for the media. The, the, the public gobbled this stuff up. It had sex, it had murder, it had intrigue, betrayal, murder mystery, you know, who done it? It was just, it, it clicked on uh, every element that makes for a, a sensational trial. While Virginia and Jason were awaiting trial, a custody battle ensued for Virginia's two youngest sons, who were 18 months and five years old at the time. A judge awarded custody of the kids to Norman's parents over Virginia's sister. Gamel took the stand in that case and said investigators suspected that Virginia's sister was actually a conspirator in Norman's death. That helped flip the case in the Larzelier's favor. Another witness also said Virginia's sister was seeking custody because it would mean she would get a cut of the late dentist's life insurance payout. Virginia's sister was never charged in the killing. The custody hearing unveiled more insight into the Larzelier household. The couple lived in a mansion in Deland with a pool and tennis courts on the premises, but the house itself was infested with fleas, dead cats, were found in the cellar and in the attic. Witnesses also testified that the Larzelier marriage, which nearly ended in divorce in 1989, was in dire straits. Norman actually contemplated moving to Canada with the children because he felt Virginia would lie her way to gaining full custody. He considered his wife an expert at lying. The pair had also spent the last year or so of their marriage spouse-swapping. They were swingers. It was how Virginia kept her marriage from falling apart after her husband discovered her cheating on him. Virginia also tried to persuade Norman to break off all contact with his parents. When Virginia found out her in-laws had been granted custody of her youngest children, she fired off an angry letter to the judge in the case. She blamed Circuit Judge John Doyle for not allowing her to leave jail to attend the hearing. She also stated he had caved to media pressure, which led him to rule in favor of the victim's parents. Eventually, nearly all of the life insurance money was awarded to Norman's children. 
Virginia was tried in February 1992. Jason would be tried later. The attorneys representing mother and son were Jack Wilkins of Bartow and John House of Fort Lauderdale. As often is the case in murder trials, the difference in demeanor between defense counsel and the state was stark. And the defense guys, are, as like all defense lawyers, are a little more irreverent, uh, a little more willing to try uh, try anything, to throw any, any kind of uh, theory of defense out there. Uh, John House and Jack Wilkins, I believe was their names. And they were cut-ups uh, during the hall. They, they would speak to the press in the hallways and joke and laugh. And they were like the, the big city guys come to Volusia County, going to, you know, defend in this big case. Whereas Sedgwick and the prosecution team would not talk to the press. They, they, they were very serious and, and righteous in their cause. During her opening statement, Assistant State Attorney Dorothy Sedgwick told jurors that the defendant's very real, invigorating lust for money motivated her to use her son Jason as the gunman. Jason, meanwhile, wasn't brainwashed. He was an eager participant, according to Sedgwick, especially considering Jason had $200,000 waiting for him if he did the deed, or so he thought. As the defense looked on, the state called witness after witness, many of whom gave astonishing testimony. Virginia had asked some of her lovers, the men she cheated on her husband with, to eliminate her husband. A couple of those guys took the stand. The allegations that she had tried to hire this country music singer, this cowboy guy, to uh, kill Norman. That came out too, and that you know, some of the imagery is just you can't beat. Uh, she, she told him he, if this cowboy fellow would kill Norman, he would get a new Harley Davidson with twenty thousand cash in the saddlebags. I mean, it's almost cinematic. Some of this, some of this stuff that came out. Jurors also listened to those witnesses who described what Virginia did as her husband lay on the floor struggling to breathe. She put her mouth over his. But she wasn't trying to give him CPR or kiss him goodbye. She was actually trying to smother him. She didn't want the others in the office to hear what Norman was saying. Another highlight was the, the witnesses describing Norman's death in the uh, waiting room after he was shot through the door. He was witness said he was calling Jason's name, and that Virginia then went to kiss him goodbye to, to quiet quiet these utterances of uh, you know perhaps uh, uttering his killer's name she was trying to you know so you had the, the dying kiss there you know the betraying and she's kissing him to silence him these uh, these things all made for pretty live you know pretty lively testimony virginia's 14 year old daughter jessica eventually took the stand that shook up everything she encapsulated the most taboo aspect of the relationship between Virginia and Jason. The one bombshell that came to light is that Jason's younger sister, Jessica, uh, described Jason's relationship with his mother, Virginia, as a, quote, husband-wife relationship, close quote. Which, they didn't, didn't pursue it much further than that, but you, it left every courtroom observer to draw their own conclusions as to what really was 
what she meant. Um, maybe she meant like they were just as close as, as a husband and wife. Maybe they meant that they complimented each other like two two spouses. Or maybe they went to she, there was a physical relationship. It didn't didn't really develop too much. And people, <laughs> given given the the distaste for an incestuous thing, even even in a trial like that, it wasn't something that people wanted to pursue. It was just just enough to be out there. It was out there. And Gamel told me he found out very early on during his investigation that Virginia and Jason had an affection for one another that far exceeded what was socially acceptable. He discovered it while he was surveilling the house one evening. Well, she called and said that they were being broken into. And, um, you know, we arrived, I think, with the land police department, I don't remember. But, um, yeah, they were in the bedroom together, in, in the bed. There was no assailant and no burglar or nothing. We were sitting there, twenty. We were sitting there um, surveillance all night long, and we would have seen someone trying to scale a second-story building, you know, or a ladder going up the side of the building or something. We never seen anything, but she called in saying that someone was breaking in, and of course we went over. We saw no one except them two. I don't think they were fully clothed. Kristen Palmieri also told jurors she witnessed Virginia and Jason playfully reenacting the murder inside their home days after the shooting. She said Virginia played the part of Norman, and she spun around and fell on her face. The two kept joking and laughing about it. During the trial, Virginia remained poised. She didn't show much emotion during the emotional portions of the witness testimony. She didn't react strongly whenever the shocking details were disclosed by those on the stand. She calmly and collectively listened to everything. During recesses, she'd smile at her attorneys and family members. Defense attorney Jack Wilkins did not deny Virginia's checkered history and even admitted she struggled to make friends and regularly violated her wedding vows. But Wilkins insisted that his client never conspired to kill her husband. On February 24, 1992, jurors convicted Virginia Larzelier of first-degree murder. On March 5th, they recommended a death sentence. Virginia wouldn't be formally sentenced until after Jason's trial. There were questions about whether there would even be a trial. Wilkins had told the media it was possible that the verdict in his mother's trial would cause Jason to plead guilty. Jason didn't change his mind. He was going ahead with the trial, but he wanted new legal representation. He wrote a letter to Wilkins and Howes notifying them that they were fired. If Jason had a hunch he would have a better chance at an acquittal without Wilkins by his side, he was probably right. It was later learned that Wilkins had carried on a sexual relationship with the trial's court reporter, which is obviously frowned upon. If that wasn't enough, there were allegations that Wilkins was drinking during the trial. Reports surfaced that one of the prosecutors smelled liquor on him. According to a 2013 story in the Miami New Times, Wilkins had installed a bar in his Bartow office. He liked his vodka, but rumors also had swirled that he liked his cocaine and meth too. Wilkins would later be convicted of tax evasion, money laundering, and other charges. He served time in federal prison and relinquished his law license. 
Virginia's appellate attorneys use Wilkins' alleged substance abuse as evidence in their argument that she had ineffective counsel. Either way, Jason's replacement turned out to be a good one. William Lastly took over the case. The defense's outlook still looked bleak. A fellow inmate of Larzalier's, Bonnie Gilbert, claimed to have been her lover. Gilbert told authorities she heard Jason admit he killed his father. That meant another witness was lining up to give damning testimony against Jason. And the state already had a lineup that convicted his mother, who didn't even pull the trigger. Lastly was undeterred. He called Gilbert a paid snitch, and he knew how to put doubt in the minds of jurors about the state's other key witnesses, particularly Heidel and Palmieri. One good thing did happen in Jason's favor during the pretrial phase of his case. The trial was going to be moved from Daytona Beach to Palatka. Spectators would later wonder whether the less sophisticated jury pool in Putnam County benefited the defense. It clearly didn't hurt. Sedgwick had won 32 consecutive capital murder cases leading up to the Jason Larzalier trial. She said so to Lastly during a recess. That was disclosed in the Miami New Times article. The story also included Lastly's reply. He said to her, quote, Get ready to be 32 and 1. From his opening statement, Lastly portrayed Heidel as the shooter and Palmieri, as well as Virginia, as conspirators. Jason was not at the scene. He rattled the dental office employee who said she believed Jason was the shooter. Lastly asked her how could she be so sure if he was wearing a mask over his face, long sleeves, long pants, and boots. Literally everything but his eyes and mouth were covered. She said one of the shooter's shoulders was lower than the other. Jason had scoliosis. The shooter, Lastly pointed out, was also carrying a shotgun. Of course his shoulders were going to be uneven. Jurors bought it, or at the very least, they had reasonable doubt that Jason was the shooter. In a shocking turn of events, Jason was acquitted. Gamel was in the courtroom, and he couldn't believe it. Yeah, everyone thought he was going—he was going to, you know, be on death row and jail for the rest of his life. I mean, you could hear a pin drop when it came out like that, you know. And um, you know, most people couldn't believe it, especially close friends of uh, Norman when they were there. They heard it and they were devastated, and you know, it was a shocking verdict. Nolan, who has covered numerous trials, was just as stunned after the verdict was read. It, it was a shock when Jason was acquitted. It was, I guess it speaks to the the defense being able to establish reasonable doubt that the individual behind the, the mask was actually Jason. Jurors, you can never predict. You get one or two jurors, they're going to say, well, you know what, unless I know for sure, unless I see that face, I, don't, I, can't, I can't convict because I don't see... I don't know who's behind that mask. It, it speaks to the value of, of hiding your identity if you're going to commit a crime, because there's always going to be jurors out there that if, there's, if they can't see the face, if they're not a video of it, then somebody in a mask, then they, that's enough reasonable doubt for them. I think Jason himself was surprised. I was surprised he went to trial, to be honest. 
I expected that he would uh, cop a plea and get a life or uh, some reduced sentence, you know, plead a second degree or something. And um, from you know, he might have gone to jump in out by now. He he rolled the dice big time. One of the people who attended the trial in support of Jason was his biological father, Harry Mathis. He had told the News Journal that Virginia always knew how to manipulate the men in her life. It was the key to her evil genius. He compared his ex-wife to a mesmerizing cobra. He believes she brainwashed her own son to commit murder. Mathis told the News Journal, quote, I used to think we were doing pretty good for a young couple. I was working to build a nice life, but she always wanted more. She wouldn't wait for it. She's a predator. Lastly found Gamel outside the courthouse and shook his hand. He did so to reassure him. He told the veteran detective, quote, You got the one you needed to get. She's off the streets. He was, of course, referring to Virginia. Nolan said the likelihood of an acquittal heading into the trial almost seemed non-existent. Nobody expected an acquittal. For one thing, they're, they're rare enough in the, in the criminal justice system. Uh, acquittals tend not to occur a lot um, because people plead out and because the state, especially in the federal system, has a lot more power in the courtroom than the defense. But, yeah, this was... Um, this was a big deal. I mean, this is one of those cases, every screwball thing happened. Virginia gets convicted. She she wasn't even the trigger man. And he didn't pull, she didn't pull the trigger. And yet she gets convicted and sentenced to, to death on a uh, seven to five jury recommendation. That was odd enough that, you know, you're not even the trigger man. You, you, and you get convicted of first degree. Then the actual trigger man gets acquitted. It was just, this, this case just went sideways every which way. As Nolan just said, Virginia did get sentenced to death. The judge in her case upheld the jury's recommendation, even though the vote was close. Back then, a majority vote was all that was needed for a death recommendation. If the murder wasn't horrifying enough, and if the investigation wasn't complicated enough, and if the trials weren't shocking enough, Gamel had one more moment in the spotlight, one he probably wished he had avoided altogether. He appeared on Geraldo, a daytime talk show hosted by current Fox News personality, Geraldo Rivera. I forgot how we got the call, but it went through the chief of police and the them, and, and then uh, down to the sergeant and then to me, and they asked me if I wanted to do it, see how I'll do it. And I was on the stage, and I forget who else. There was like four or five other people. It was more of a question answer, uh, you know, a lot of sensationalizing everything. While on the set, Gamel nearly got into a fight backstage with a private investigator who was a Virginia Larzalier sympathizer. He also sat on stage in front of an unruly audience, which may have included Jason and his father, but his memory of it isn't totally clear. The episode's final edit excluded a lot, according to Gamel. Again, that was being taped, so they edited it to spin it any way they wanted to make a good show, which actually really frustrated me because I uh, actually pissed me off. You know, I thought what we're saying is going to be aired. When I saw the show, it was like 
that didn't happen. You know, like I'd make a statement, they'd cut it off to make it sound totally opposite. That really, really aggravated me. After her sentencing hearing, Virginia was sent to the death row designated for women. At the time, it was called X-Dorm, and it was located in Broward County Correctional. There were three women already there, and two of them were from Volusia County. Deidre Hunt, who I profiled on this podcast in October, and Eileen Wuornos, whose life and crimes were depicted in the film Monster, starring Charlize Theron, who won an Academy Award for the role. Virginia did not get along with Wuornos, not at first. Gamel told me the two of them got into a fight over a fellow inmate. Warnos had a crush on this inmate, but when Larzalier wound up moving in, the inmate started crushing on her. That enraged Warnos. The fight was broken up before anyone was seriously hurt, but Gamel said he was told that one of Virginia's breast implants got ruptured during the melee. She had to have it fixed. Gamel thought maybe Virginia had talked to Warnos about her crime, so he drove to the women's death row facility to interview Warnos. It wasn't a friendly interview. I was just in her space. Maybe she didn't like what I was asking her or the way I was asking her, but all of a sudden she, like, changed and came at me. And uh, I had to subdue her, of course, and um, I called, you know, for the guards to come in and uh, the interview. In 1998, Hunt was moved from death row after her sentence was changed to life in prison. The other two women on death row with Virginia were executed. For a while, Virginia was alone in that dorm. That changed in 2008 when her sentence was reduced to life in prison. Ludi Lellis, who was a reporter for the Orlando Sentinel at the time, remembered covering that sentencing hearing. Her final hearing was almost anticlimactic um, because it would be settled with a life sentence and, you know, there would be nothing more about the notorious elements of the case. It was it was a very quiet, very brief ending to the whole escapade. Virginia is now housed at the Homestead Correctional Institution in Florida City. Now 65 years old, she is serving a life sentence. Her last motion to throw out her verdict was denied. That is being appealed. The Miami New Times article I had cited, written by Terrence McCoy, who's now a reporter with the Washington Post, had the headline, Virginia Larzalier, sentenced to death for a murder she didn't commit. There are some people who advocate for her, believe strongly that she's innocent. Her supporters point to the unreliable testimony of Stephen Heidel and Kristen Palmieri, Heidel in particular. In 1999, Heidel hanged himself. Lellis told me that was a critical factor in the state agreeing to settle for a life sentence for Virginia Larzalier. They weren't going to try her again without the key witness. The prosecutor at the time had figured out that after 15 years, a key witness had died and other witnesses might not have the same memory as they did for the trial 15 years prior. So they decided to just um, hold down the case with a light sentence. The case may have ended with a whimper, but while it was being investigated and while it was revving through the court system, it enthralled people across the country. 
Nolan, for one, had conflicting feelings about it. He understood the fascination, but it sometimes made him feel rotten. The case begins with intrigue and greed, a $2.1 million insurance policy, which is your classical murder, you know, right out of the, right out of your classical textbook murder motivation. And then it just spins into this crazy, crazy picture of a dysfunctional family. It was one of those cases you feel a little dirty, you know? You feel like, geez, you know, it's got a very strong ick factor to it. Uh, the legal ins and outs, they were fun to write about, fun to explain to the public how this could happen. I think I even wrote a column about how one could be convicted and one acquitted. And But you still, you think, yeah, I know, wish, you know, I kind of wish I wasn't exposed to all this. Jason Larzelier's whereabouts are not known. There were reports that he had enlisted in the U.S. Navy. Gamel told me he had heard he had moved to Europe, possibly Scandinavia, but that couldn't be confirmed. Gamel initially refused to take part in this podcast. He can't seem to get out from under it. He's participated in crime shows that have profiled it. He appeared on Geraldo. He's also been deposed numerous times, including by Virginia's appellate attorneys in 2002. The line of questioning was, at times, combative. But eventually, Gamel came around. He admitted to me that he sometimes looks back with a sense of dumbfoundedness at how he could have been in the middle of one of the most intriguing murder cases making headlines at the time. And before it was all over, he found himself fighting with Eileen Warnos inside a prison interview room. Isn't that just crazy? I mean, I mean, you <laughs> these are these are two of the most notorious female killers in the 20th century, <laughs> and you you had your involvement with both of them in, in some fashion. Doesn't that blow your yeah, mind? It does. And looking back in, in retrospect, I think this case is. Uh, one of the record books because you don't get cases like this. I mean, it had everything. Any possible angle you can think, it had. And, uh, yeah, it, it, it did blow my mind. At the time, you know, I just taking care of business. And, um, like I, I had said, this was such a complex case. One guy can't do it. I mean, I had a good team. We had a team and a good leader. It took a team to, to bring her down. Thank you for listening. Check out the front page of today's news journal for my story on the Larzalier case or visit www.newsjournalonline.com for the story and accompanying photo gallery. Tune in next week when I discuss a March 15th, 2000 double murder that took place in Sumter County. The slayings were witnessed by two toddlers hiding underneath a dining room table. The killer remained free for years and was tried and acquitted for murder in Wisconsin before he was ever charged for the Sumter killing. Now, he sits on death row. Among my guests will be Sumter County Chief Deputy Gary Brannon, homicide prosecutor Pete Magrino, and former reporter Richard Kahn. Join us then. You can find Tony on Twitter at Tony Crime Writer or email him at Tony.Holt at news-jrnl.com. Be sure to rate us on iTunes. Sun Crime State is recorded by Tony Holt and produced by Chris Bridges for the Daytona Beach News Journal. Mm-hmm.